Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the pleasure in person to be talking to the author of Unaffordable, American Healthcare from uh, Johnson to Trump. Uh, The book is published by the University of Wisconsin Press, and the author is Jonathan Engel. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Great. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Uh, I normally do this uh, via technology. The technology is a little broken down today. Uh, We've got a little background noise that we're going to work through. Thank you for sharing the book. Thank you for writing the book. Um, Before we get to it, maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, a little bit about your background. Sure. I'm a little bit odd. I'm actually trained as a historian. My PhD is in the history of science and medicine, Uh, but I also went to business school and majored in accounting and finance. So I've always done research in history, particularly history of healthcare or history of science policy. Uh, But I tend to teach management or teach finance or teach statistics. And so as a result, I'm an odd historian who actually takes an interest in the business side of history. Yeah, and and the book is um, uh, clearly very informed by your background in business. Um, This is a book about how the healthcare industry interacts with government, how it interacts with politics and policy. Uh, You cover a specific time period. Uh, Let's take us to the beginning of that time period and think just before it. So the book starts with Johnson, at least in the title. Um, but what was going on in terms of healthcare just before this time period? What did healthcare look like before we get these large federal programs that we so associate with the way healthcare works in this country, Medicare and Medicaid? What did healthcare look like and, and what were its main problems prior to the 1960s? Sure. So for most of history, healthcare was really a, a, a small cash practice. Doctors did okay. They didn't make a fortune. Uh, hospitals were built as charitable institutions. They covered their operating costs with patient billings and some philanthropy. In general, when they wanted to do capital expansion, they had to go to their philanthropic supporters. You couldn't just take loans. There were no hospital construction bonds. Um, so medicine was not a place to get rich. Drug companies, a few of them got rich. Uh, odd patented proprietary drugs back in the 19th century. I just a slight aside, it was at the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia. Many people are familiar with it. An incredible collection of fine arts. Many people are unaware of how Mr. Barnes made his money. 
Mr. Barnes was a bit of a charlatan. He marketed a single drug, which was based on silver oxide. It was a tincture of silver oxide. You put silver drops in your eyes. And silver is a biocide. It knocks out uh, uh, bacteria and viruses. So it was terrific when you had eye infections. We all get eye infections. Um, the problem with silver oxide is the silver uh, uh, gets concentrated in your blood and eventually it turns your skin blue. <laughs> so we don't use it anymore. It's not that it's toxic, but it literally turns you blue. But Barnes was single-handedly able to make a fortune by selling little bottles of silver oxide. And we have these kinds of small fortunes and small independent pharmaceutical companies all across America. But doctors didn't get rich, and hospitals certainly didn't get rich. And hospital administrators were basically glorified accountants who worked at the pleasure of the board of trustees and the medical staff. 1960s come, and, and the problems of, of the condition of, of health in the country becomes a prominent point of discussion uh, in Washington, state capitals. And out of that time period, two major federal programs uh, are, are enacted. Uh, would you tell us just a little bit about Medicare, Medicaid, and, and um, how they fit into the story that you're telling and, and uh, about President Johnson and, and sort of his, his role here? Sure. So uh, many people have written about President Johnson. He was uh, an extraordinarily effective legislator. That was really what he was. He wasn't so much a moral compass, but amazingly effective at getting compromised to the Hill. And I think he was really able to capitalize on the national tragedy of the Kennedy assassination to push through a very broad agenda of domestic legislation. Um, Medicare and Medicaid both passed in 1965. Medicare was the central piece of legislation. Medicaid was sort of an odd add-on. It was almost put on at the last second. Medicaid is, many people are unaware of it, but Medicaid is actually a series of 50 interlocked state programs. It's not a federal program, although there's a federal match to the states. Medicare was really by far the more preeminent one. There had been efforts for 15 years to try to get through some sort of add-on to the Social Security program. And in fact, if you look back in 1934 at the initial report of the Committee on Economic Security, which was what created Social Security, they recommended national health insurance. And the Roosevelt White House knocked it off. It was, it was going to antagonize too many physicians and too many supporters. Um, so the federal government had long at least toyed with the idea of national health insurance, and various leaders in Congress had. Why Medicare in 1965? After all, that's national health insurance, but just national health insurance for old people. And the answer is because old people are incredibly problematic from an insurance perspective. And Heath, if you'll indulge me, let me just talk a little bit about Medicare and why Medicare is so critical to understanding healthcare today. We all know what health insurance is, right? We prepay these premiums and then we get reimbursed, we get indemnified. Health insurance is really, really weird because insurance is predicated on random risk, right? That's why we buy homeowner's insurance. We know that someone's house is going to burn down, but we don't know whose house is going to burn down. So we all pay a little bit in. And people who are uninformed will say, well, that's the same with health. After all, someone's going to get sick, but we don't know who. But here's the problem with health. We do know who is going to get sick. This is exactly why healthcare is so problematic to an incredible degree when you're young, you're healthy, and when you're old, you're not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Your body is a machine, it's breaking down, and it's getting more and more expensive as you get older. So if I only could ask you one question about you, which is how old are you, I could actually make a pretty good stab at what your health costs are going to be this year. I mean, obviously, there's some variance. Maybe you have cancer, maybe there's a genetic issue, maybe there's a congenital problem. But basically, if you're 85, you're expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you're 16, you're cheap. With one little blip of pregnancy in the 30s where people get a little bit more expensive. Right? 
So how do you insure against that? After all, why would any insurance company ever sell a 72-year-old an insurance policy? You wouldn't, right? A 72-year-old is like a 52 DeSoto, right? It's very expensive. So health insurance really doesn't work for the elderly. It's not a viable product. But if people are going to insist on living till they're old and we don't want them dying on the streets, then we have to have some way of indemnifying the elderly. And that's why we integrate it into a national health insurance plan. Mm -hmm. And that's what Johnson understood. A lot of people understood it. And because everyone is going to get old someday, or we hope to all get old, and most of us know someone who's old, which is our parents, um, there's there's a broad national buy-in for this. Mm -hmm. There's a broad national consensus that we ought to care for the elderly. The problem with the elderly is they're really, really expensive. Uh, we can, I, I'll just give a, a fun little statistic, and then you'll break in when mm -hmm. I'm talking too much. Uh, here's a fun little statistic. If you look at all mammals across the animal kingdom, most mammals live for 1.5 billion heartbeats, whether you're a field mouse or whether you're an elephant, right? So it's just, it's, a, it's not a mm -hmm. bad rule of thumb. So that puts us at about age 55, right? And in fact, if you looked historically, that's about when humans lived to mm. 55. But today we live till 80. So how did we get from 55 till 80? And the answer is the same way that you get a 1950 Chevy lasting until 2010. You can do it, but it costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You're constantly putting in new parts, a lot of TLC, a lot of maintenance. And that's how you get a human body from 55 to 80. You're putting in huge numbers of synthetic molecules, artificial parts, all sorts of special biologics. It's not natural for these bodies to last way. We can do it, but it's expensive. So we, we have these uh, uh, federal programs introduced to deal with some of the, um, the, the problems that are perceived and the peculiarities of, of the, the lifespan. Uh, but a big sort of part, a big voice in the book are the doctors. Yes. The doctors as individuals, the doctors with their unique cultures, but also the doctors in the way in which they're politically organized. I wonder if you could talk about uh, the response of, of organized health interests to Medicare and Medicaid in that, in that early time period, at the point at which the programs were, were all promise, um, but still pose some concerns. How, how were these programs received by the interests that, that interacted with them so directly? Right. So not surprisingly, doctors have long been suspicious of federal incursions into health care. Um, doctors are anti-institutional by bearing. They are, um, uh, they're proud, they're independent, they're anti-authoritarian, they're a little bit skeptical of established authority, and they're skeptical of government, and they're skeptical of management, right? If you, if you talk to a typical doctor, they're a little bit contemptuous of management in general. So the idea of government management is really problematic for a doctor. And doctors really from the 1920s on were very, very leery about a third party getting between them and their patient. They really hated this idea. During the Great Depression, when huge numbers of Americans simply couldn't pay their medical bills, they were willing to allow for private hospital insurance to come in, which expanded during the war. But they still heavily, heavily resisted government insurance. So how did Johnson get this through in 1965? Basically, he gave it away. He said to doctors, he said to the AMA and to medical leadership, what do I have to put in this legislation to make this tolerable to you? And the doctor said, here's the deal. You use a private sector intermediary. So Medicare funds were run through Blue Cross Blue Shield. They trusted Blue Cross Blue Shield because they sat on the boards of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. And you have to pay us whatever we want. We set the price, we write the bill, and you simply identify the patient to identify us. Which seems crazy, right? How, how could you be 
a third-party payer and allowing your provider to be setting the price, but that's exactly what we did. Johnson was so eager to get this through, he essentially gave away the store. And immediately, uh, the, the program was implemented January 1st, 1966, and rapidly, health insurance, healthcare inflation, excuse me, which had really paralleled the CPI for many, many years, doubled the CPI. So we went from 2 or 3% annual healthcare inflation to quickly 6%, 8%. By the mid-70s, we were up to 13% or 14% in a year. And this was reasonably predictable, right? I mean, in fact, if you look at the verbiage in the Medicare Act, it says that physicians should be paid customary and prevailing fees. Well, if every doctor in town raises their fees by 20%, that becomes the new customary and prevailing. And that's exactly what happened, right? Um, I, I want to add one more issue about giving away the store for Medicare. Medicare did this for the doctors, but Medicare also gave a huge gift to the hospitals, and this is what it was. Hospitals, like many businesses, have long separated capital costs and operating costs. And particularly with hospitals, because they tend to be nonprofit, capital costs were shouldered by philanthropists, by charitable giving. Under Medicare, hospitals were allowed to borrow money using bonds, hospital construction bonds, take the cost of servicing the debt, and roll it into patient billing. So it's as if all of a sudden your bill went up 20% because now you were covering the bond cost of the underlying building, they could then charge that back to the federal government and the federal government was willing to pay. So suddenly every hospital in the country got licensed to expand. You could simply borrow the money on the open debt markets, build a new wing, build a new cancer center, and simply raise your patient billing rates and charge it back to the federal government. And that's exactly what they did. So we saw a huge spate of hospital buildings starting in the late 60s, early 70s. The way Medicaid played out uh, worked differently, and you have this very interesting section about the the different way that younger doctors responded to Medicaid and also providing care for the poor, and and their activism and their um, the, so their response to government was was different. I wonder if you could talk a, a bit about even in New York City the response of of, of doctors to uh, community health centers and. Uh, the ways in which um, the politics of, of younger physicians during that time period differed in some ways from the natural tendencies that you've just described about doctors typically. Sure. So I, I, in general, I think if you look at physicians, they tend to have somewhat of an engineering mindset. They have a specialized body of scientifically based information. They're confronted with a problem, with a pathology, and their job is to diagnose the pathology and to intervene with a therapy, with an appropriate therapy. That's kind of an engineering. How do you Here's the discrete problem. How do we address this problem with the tools we have at hand? Suddenly, in the late 60s, you had a group of people going into medicine who saw health as part of a broader social justice issue. That is, that they noticed that poor people were often unhealthy, which is often true, and they saw health as a prerequisite to full participation in society that was not being guaranteed to all Americans, whether you were poor or whether you were African-American or whether you were an immigrant. They just saw health as being on health care as being unevenly distributed. And you wound up with sort of, it, it was, it was a, a product of the times, the zeitgeist of kind of the progressive liberalism of the times, but you saw a certain number of young physicians who went into medicine with this notion of not just healing the patient, but perhaps in their own small way, healing society, whether that would be volunteering as part of their time at a, at a community health center or taking on a Peace Corps kind of mission or serving in an underserved area. I don't want to overstate it. This was mm -hmm. not most doctors. 
It tended to be young doctors. It tended to be a group of young doctors, particularly who were in the primary care areas. I think the moment passed rather quickly by the early 70s. And one of the reasons why it passed was oddly because of Medicaid. So Medicaid, as I said, was an add-on to Medicare. And suddenly, for the first time, poor people all over the country actually had access to essentially comprehensive health insurance. Medicaid is not ideal. It tends to reimburse at a lower rate than private health insurers, but it's not bad. And all of a sudden, people had to rethink what it meant to do pro bono care. Doctors had always done a certain amount of pro bono care. It was really part of the commitment as professionals in the community. And all nonprofit hospitals had always served a certain number of people on a charitable basis. But suddenly, the people who would have been the recipients of this Ellie Mosnery behavior had health insurance. So what does it mean to be giving charity to someone who has a voucher, right? It changes the nature of charity. And this was a little confusing for doctors, right? Why would you be giving it away when, in fact, there's a government voucher walking in with your patient through the door? Um, so one thing this did is this actually created a bit of a crisis for public hospitals, right? Because their patient population suddenly became appealing to private hospitals, right? A, a private, a, a Medicaid patient suddenly becomes almost as attractive as a private insured patient. So these patients started migrating away from public hospitals toward private hospitals, leaving only the most uncompensated or uncovered patients within the public hospital system. Yeah, a lot of the book is about these these perverse uh, incentives that are built into uh, healthcare programs and the design of hospitals, private, nonprofit, and, and what have you, and the effect on, on doctor choices about specialties. And so one of the things you sort of describe is the the shift in in uh, the, the how attractiveness how attractive it might be to go into a specialty. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that has worked as we move over time, as we move from the 1960s uh, into the 1970s and 80s, and as um, the, the primary care phys- physicians become a much less attractive uh, 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 career uh, option, and, and the specialties become increasingly um, attractive and also relate to the title of your book, which is on affordability. Right. So... I will say I've been studying healthcare for 25 years, and one of the hardest pieces of data to get is how much doctors actually earn. Doctors don't work for publicly traded corporations. Their incomes are private. They have no real interest in disclosing them. It's actually very, very hard to get your hand on reliable physician income data. And even in private conversations, very few doctors will actually disclose this. Doctors historically have gotten paid substantially more for discrete procedures. So you can divide up medicine essentially into cogitative work and physical work, right? And in some ways, the cogitative work historically has been more prestigious and it's more nuanced and it's more interesting, right? And that's what internist goes to. When you think about when you go to your internist or your GP, they're not actually doing a lot to you. They're listening to you. They're looking at a lot of data points. They're looking at your blood levels. They're looking at temperatures. They're looking at vital signs. They're trying to understand the complex biochemical feedback systems going on in your body and where something's off. And they're doing a lot of thinking more than anything. But it's very hard for them to make an argument about the value they add. After all, it's hard to put a price on thinking. And we tend to discount thinking, and payers tend to discount thinking, right? By contrast, when you go into a surgical intervention... There's no thinking. The diagnosis is very clear. The bone is broken. The muscle needs to be reattached. The cartilage is dysfunctional, needs to be replaced. So suddenly you have a very discrete problem with a very clear remedy. The remedy is discrete. It ends. And the remedy immediately produces measurable value. You went in in agony. 
and you walk away and now you're fine. So you can immediately put a value on this. The patient puts a value on it and they demand that this service be rectified and be indemnified by the insurer. So starting in 1966, surgeons had always made a premium over internists, but it wasn't a profound premium. And all of a sudden, the premiums became profound, right? Suddenly, someone in a surgical specialty or a surgical subspecialty or a medical subspecialty like electrocardiology or something, they weren't just making a 10 or 20% premium on the internists. They were making a 300% premium on the internists. Huge. And here's what people want to understand is that the difference in training investment was literally just an additional two years. You've already spent four years in college and four years in medical school and four years in residency. So you've spent 12 years post-high school training, and now you're up to $150,000. For another two years, you suddenly zip up to $400,000, right? So the return on investment of this final year or two of training is extraordinary. And unless you're enormously idealistic or you have family money, or you just truly don't care about income, you'd be crazy to pass this up. How could you? You're young. You don't know what your financial challenges are going to be as you go through life. How could anyone pass this up unless you're deeply, deeply committed to primary care? And we do see that. Mm -hmm. um, and and how, how associated is that, whether causally or not, uh, with the perceived and, and often real unaffordability and rising costs of, of healthcare, which frame all of the recent debates, whether they are about um, uh, in 2009, 2010, about Obamacare or the more recent debates about repealing Obamacare and replacing with something else, um, how associated are those patterns with the overall unaffordability or are they driven by other things like pharmaceutical costs? So it's a good question. So um, first of all, I just want to say that one of the great ironies of calling Obamacare the Affordable Care Act is that when President Obama came in, they, they, they had a choice of either addressing accessible access issues or addressing price issues. And there was a conscious decision to only address access. So it's ironic that the bill is called the Affordable Care Act. In fact, what it is is the Affordable Insurance Act. So it allowed more people to buy into the insurance. It did nothing or really very, very little about limiting inflation in healthcare itself. Um, here's the problem. You have someone else cutting the check. Right. So you're essentially eating on expense account when you buy healthcare in this country. And anyone who's ever traveled on expense account or eaten out on expense account knows that you behave differently. We're all human beings. We're not immoral. We're just human beings. When someone else is covering your tab, you behave differently, particularly when the issue is healthcare and there's fear and there's ignorance and there is a difficult time actually assessing utility, perhaps that procedure, perhaps that extra MRI. Perhaps that new brand of drug really will give me a little bit of added utility. And it's very, very hard to distinguish where the utility ends. And then your own incentives as a consumer, as a patient, are messed up here. So there are huge pressures within the system to inflate consumption and to inflate the quality of consumption. We're, we're inflating both the volume that we're consuming and we're also inflating the quality that we're consuming. And there's no price restriction to hold us back. That is, when markets work, they work because we assess price rationally. But when we're not paying the price, when we're in fact often paying a very, very near a sliver of the price, then the price restriction in markets fails to work. So the market doesn't prove it correctly. And that's exactly what's happening. I want to point out, there are really only two ways of rectifying this from sort of a macroeconomic standpoint. You can either have people pay their own bills. That's kind of the, the conservative argument of skin in the game. That works, by the way. When people have to pay their own bills, they become very, very price sensitive in healthcare. 
whether it's their psychotherapist or whether it's cosmetic dentistry, if you look at the places where people actually do buy healthcare on their own cash, they're very price sensitive. The alternative is to have a fierce and aggressive auditing mechanism. And when you think about when you travel on expense accounts, there's an auditor in the office. Someone is looking over your receipt and says, why did you order this? And why did you stay at this hotel? And why did you fly on this airline? And no, you may not fly business class, right? There's someone looking over every expenditure. It's intrusive and it's distasteful, but we understand it. We could do that in healthcare. We absolutely could, but we would hate it. And we already do it to some degree. You know that when you go to your internist and she has to refer you to a specialist, she often has to get permission. We have to make a phone call and then someone at the other end of the phone has to okay this, often with very limited information. And then there's only a list of certain specialists you can see. And even then we have to get an okay whether or not to be admitted to the hospital. That is effectively an audit function. We're all familiar with that when, when the person at the office is overseeing our dinner, you know, our dinner receipt. But it's very intrusive. It's cumbersome. It takes time. The doctors hate it. The patients hate it. And there are limits to how much we're willing to tolerate it. So we've made a different choice as a society, which is to simply pay higher and higher health insurance premiums. We're not willing to be audited as effectively as, effective as we ought to be. And so we all pay. Now, uh, I'm going to do whatever historian does not like, which is to say, let's cover 50-odd uh, years of history <laughs> and 20-odd minutes of time. But if, if you were just to, to describe your perceptions of how our current president views health care, um, you described a little bit about what President Johnson's um, sort of take on the problem and solution was. Uh, do you have a sense at this point of what President Trump's view of the problem and view of the solution is? You offered two different alternatives. Do you gather that he favors the uh, conservative one, uh, or do you think that he has some other view, or is are his views right now uh, not very clear? So I would preface this by saying all of us who study healthcare snickered a little when about a year ago, President Trump said, who would have thought that healthcare was so complicated? <laughs> to which we all said, we all thought healthcare was complicated. We spend our lives studying it. We know it's extraordinarily complicated. So we all giggled a little bit. I don't think this administration has a clear vision of what they want out of healthcare, And I'm not sure I understand the Republican opprobrium to the Affordable Care Act to Obamacare, not just under Trump, but really starting from the beginning when you were trying to pass this legislation in 2010. One of the odd ironies of history is that the Affordable Care Act was actually created by the Heritage Foundation, a conservative-leaning think tank, really a free market-leaning think tank. When people talk about Obamacare as a government takeover of healthcare, that's precisely what it's not. And there are many faults in Obamacare, and I could have a balanced and nuanced conversation about it. But what it certainly isn't is a government takeover of healthcare. What it is is a regulation and subsidies of private health insurance. It was an effort to regulate and to normalize the private health insurance markets for individuals who wanted to buy policies. So we did exactly the opposite. Instead of socializing medicine, we, we, we buttressed and bolstered the private sector insurance companies and allowed more people to buy private health insurance policies. So I've always been perplexed at this rhetoric surrounding nationalizing healthcare. That's exactly what we decided not to do. And in fact, those of us who think a little bit more globally about this think that was probably a mistake. It was really an effort to put in a, a public option when we were uh, discussing the Affordable Care Act, essentially kind of a Medicare for all that you wouldn't be forced into, but you could opt into if you chose to. 
And we were so committed to a private approach to this that we, we cut that in the legislative negotiations. We said there will not be a public option. You may not buy public health insurance, even if you wanted it. You must buy private health insurance. Um, so I, I've never really understood the, the deep Republican antipathy to this. And I sometimes wonder if it's just a certain kind of visceral hostility to legislation that was enacted under a Democratic administration. It was done under a Democratic president with Democratic leadership, and therefore it must be opposed. Even if in theory we actually support it, or even if in theory it's consistent with our political ideology and our political beliefs, because it was a domestic legislative accomplishment, it must be opposed. And I, I, I suspect, I don't know, I can't get in President Trump's head, but that's what it feels like to me. It feels sort of very personal, superficial opposition without really understanding the underlying goals of the program. Yeah, the, the book, uh, which is um, both interesting and incredibly uh, readable, uh, readable in a way that most healthcare uh, discussions uh, sometimes are not, which may be a, a, another factor uh, here. Uh, this is a very readable book, a very interesting book. The title is Unaffordable American Healthcare from Johnson to Trump. The author is Jonathan Engel and the publisher is University of Wisconsin Press. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you.